HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at cheesestateuniversity.com. Hey, hey, welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host. It's our 14th year here on Heritage Radio Network. Well, I came out to Denver to celebrate the Bolozole Mezcal and Pozole Festival. And of course, our friend Emily Hudo at Radcraft Beer said, you got to meet Greg and Sarah Fetzer at the Emporium Brewery. So I'm here now. I walked in. It was my perfect way to start the day. Spent grain aroma for breakfast. So... Uh, this is what Denver is like, and we're going to talk more about it, and we get some other friends joining us later who uh, are here for, to sell their tequila as well. So let's uh, go around the room and introduce you, ourselves. Sure. I'm uh, Sarah Fetzer, uh, owner of the Emporium Brewing Company. Yeah, Greg Fetzer, owner and head brewer of the Emporium. I will say it, it's quite a treat to be here. Denver's been really nice to me. I'm, I'm also an East Coast guy, so everything's a little different. So what's it like the business climate and, and beer climate in Denver? I always hear about Fort Collins. Um, you know, just tell me about drinking beer in Denver. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there is absolutely no shortage of beer in Denver. That's for sure. Uh, the craft brewers guild kind of, uh, labeled Colorado specifically as the state of craft beer. Um, and Denver is absolutely a central hub. A lot of people think of, uh, Fort Collins because of new Belgium and stuff like that. But, um, if you're looking for small, more independent breweries, things like that, Denver is the spot, um, really leading the charge as far as innovation. Um, you can find anything from session ability high alcohol beers wood age um light lagers um it's been it's been fun to be a part of yeah I, just in our neighborhood alone um within four block radius there's five of us uh so it's a great little area to come down here and do a brewery tour um, wow give us give a shout out to those other breweries yeah so flight co-brewing uh they opened a month before we did so they're always kind of been our neighborhood buddies um Berkeley Alley Beer Company is in the alley right behind us, and right around the corner from them is the Grateful Gnome. Uh, he's uh, also like a New Jersey-style deli, so great sandwiches. And then Call to Arms is probably the longest-running one, um, and they're a few blocks north of us as well. Great. So let's talk about starting up. Greg, your, your background in, in beer and as a brewer? Yeah, absolutely. I think like a lot of people in the beer industry kind of took um, an interest in uh, home brewing, and we actually went to Colorado State. So we're from uh, Fort Collins. We went there, uh, went to college there. So huge craft brew scene there, obviously, and they were early on the scene. Um, so started home brewing, did that for a while, decided I wanted to quit the desk job, uh, get into it professionally. So we both moved to the uh, West Coast, um, Oregon coast, and I worked for Rogue out there. Uh, 
for a couple of years, started on the uh, lower level packaging, worked my way up, learned it all from the bottom up, um, came back to Colorado. We always knew we wanted to be back in Colorado, worked for another brewery up to a head brewer position there in Castle Rock. And then uh, four years ago from earlier this week, actually, uh, we opened this bad boy. Yeah, we opened our doors on March 29th, four years ago. So two days, two two days and four years. Congratulations. Thank Cheers. You. Cheers. It feels like an accomplishment, doesn't it? Very much so, especially we opened March 2019 and then March 2020, we were shut for COVID. So our first anniversary, we were closed. So uh, Yeah, so to be able to rock through that, um, we're very fortunate where we are. We have a very uh, neighborhood model as far as a business model goes. So um, the Berkeley neighborhood in Denver really kept us afloat during that. Um, yeah, we couldn't we couldn't be happier happier or more fortunate to be where we are. Well, let's talk about the beers. You know, do do you have a philosophy of beer? I mean, I walk in smelling spent grain in the morning. That that says it all for me, right? Right there, I'm like, this quality. There's something about that. Yeah, absolutely. What we kind of liked about um, the name, the Emporium, when we uh, started, is it implies that um, we'll have a little bit of everything for everybody. Um, and we really wanted to approach it again, being a neighborhood brewery uh, with a neighborhood model of um, having sessionable beers, meaning little lower on the alcohol side. Um, a little bit of touch of finesse, a little more balance in the IPAs, not bitter bombs and stuff like that. Uh, our fruity beers are very balanced, very approachable. Um, yeah, so we kind of came from it from sessionability and just kind of making sure that we had a little bit of something for everyone. That's great. Well, I'm drinking the rice lager. Let's talk about that. So Emily says that I like, I like rice lagers. I do like rice lagers. <laughs> You know, what, what is it about rice that, that makes this lager so drinkable? Yeah, absolutely. That's And we do a, a decent amount of light lagers. There's something that's fun about that, especially as a brewer. Um, there is very little to hide behind in a light lager. Um, so you can really fine-tune kind of your expertise. It takes a lot of finesse to do something um, simple, easy, clean. If you have one off flavor, you're absolutely going to taste it, especially with a rice lager. A rice lager, essentially the rice that you add, it has about 30% rice. Um, and rice will add basically no flavor. It just adds a little more alcohol, um, lightens the body, things like that. So um, really makes it dry, clean, crisp, awesome for the hot weather coming up. And we were uh, fortunate enough to win a bronze at World Beer Cup for this one last year. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, and how important is is that, like, World Beer Cup and GABF and the, the things that the Brewers Association has set up? How important are those to you as a brewer? Yeah, they're huge. Um, they're, we get solicited uh, to enter several competitions, hundreds a year, um, but we only do two, and I think a lot of breweries do. It's GABF and then the World Beer Cup. GABF is more of a national competition that everyone enters. Uh, the World Beer Cup is a worldwide competition, so you're going up, especially with your German lagers, you're going up against German breweries and things like that. Um, and anywhere, any given year, you're going up against 10,000 to 12,000 different beers. Um, it's really the who's who. It's almost like the Oscars of the beer industry type of video, you know. So, um, Sarah, when did you get roped into being part of this brewery? Uh, from the beginning, I'd say. Um, we met just after college, and both of our families have their own businesses, and I think that was always kind of a goal of ours. And um, Greg is so passionate about craft beer and brewing, and he eats, sleeps, drinks craft beer. So we kind of knew that it was something we wanted to do, but we wanted that professional experience first. So I have the marketing and finance background, so I kind of do all the paperwork and, you know, fun behind the scenes things. <laughs> Stuff you get no credit for. Yeah. Um, but it's fun. It's, it's, it's rare, I think, to be able to work with your spouse every day and still love them, <laughs> as weird <laughs> as that sounds. But uh, yeah, from the beginning, this is something we knew we wanted to do. And four years in, we're still having fun. So it's cool. Well, it's great. I mean, it, it, it's behind the scenes, but, you know, everyone that's you're, you're ordering from and you're paying the bills to, they know when you're doing a good job, right? I, I hope so. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We kind of like being the husband wife team and we have a couple other partners as well. But um, 
what we like about how small we are and everything is we're incredibly hands-on. All the owners are. Um, so every time someone comes in here, they'll see one of our faces. I feel like that's kind of cool and unique from a craft beer and small business perspective, too. Great. Let's talk about your community because, um, you know, I, I think that's one thing that stands out about a, a small family-owned brewery. Absolutely. So we picked Tennyson Street in the Berkeley neighborhood um, because it reminds. So Greg and I are both from small Colorado towns. We went to Fort Collins and CSU and Old Town Fort Collins reminded us a lot of this area that we're in now. And it's cool to see customers walking down the street with their dog or their kids and you can wave and say, you know, hey, Billy, or say hi to their dog, Abel and things like that. And then you come in and you know exactly what they want to drink. So it's it's really what we wanted to do was be a neighborhood spot. And the neighborhoods really rallied behind us for that. What's your policy on strollers? <laughs> Uh, <laughs> they're welcome and they're a lot on Sundays. Yeah, keep yeah. them close to the table. Yeah. <laughs> That's about all we yeah, ask. Yeah, we also allow dogs too. So sometimes it can get a little a little crazy, but they're people's kids too. So <laughs> So besides the rice lager, what 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 are some beers that are on right now or that, that you really like that you would want to tell people about? Yeah, sure. Um, some of our more popular beers, uh, we have a coffee blonde that we do uh, strictly on nitro through the tap room. So it kind of weirds people out. We don't always have a dark beer um, on, but that one drinks super dark, even though it is a light beer. Um, infused with coffee, it pours light, but drinks pretty um, pretty dark. It, it's a fun one. And on nitro, it almost drinks like a uh, nitro cold brew. Um, it's a fun beer. And then our um, staples, Dope IPA, Peace Love and Pale Ale, That's those are two that are two of our popular. And Peace Love is kind of close to our heart. Um, we do um, a portion of profits for that beer every month to a new charity. Um, so that one, we really try to push and you know, get people to buy and donate and things like that. You know, in, in your career, Greg, um, you know, I'm, I'm in this really nice little brew house, but it's great. Tell us about a couple of the places you worked and maybe one thing that you learned in each as a brewer or about running the operation. Yeah, I think I probably, in comparison to a lot of other people, took a unique uh, career path starting at a incredibly large production facility like Rogue where we were doing 120,000 barrels a year um, to Rockyard where we were doing close to five to 7,000 barrels a year and now here we're doing um, about 500 barrels we're on pace to hit close to 700 barrels this year with the distribution we picked up. So I've been able to learn kind of the processing techniques from a huge brewery and kind of bring the large production uh, philosophy to a really small place, you know? And I think a lot of that has to do with um, consistency is huge, especially in large packaging, because with Rogue, if they pick up a dead guy in one spot, pick up a dead guy from the other, it has to taste the exact same or else they're not going to drink it again. Um, so we come with that consistency approach of a large production facility um, to our teen tiny little brew house here. <laughs> yeah, and we like to have fun with it. You know, Greg working at Rogue and Rockyard, they, they had staples that they had to make all the time. And we have our core beers, but we like to have fun with it too. So uh, one of our weird ones that we did and now it's a has to come back every summer is called selenia it's a cucumber basil kettle sour kind of tastes like cucumber water when you said that you gave me a, a funny look on your face why did you do that <laughs> i mean cucumber basil in a beer sounds kind of weird it's also but it's just delicious. a giant pain in the ass to make <laughs> <It is. laughs> so we do a hundred or about 200 pounds of fresh cucumber so we have to hand peel process it it takes the four of us here six hours in one day to do it the whole brew house smells like cucumber which sounds smells delicious uh wildly big hit that we weren't expecting so it's kind of a, a fun one but also a pain in the butt to make every year yeah um that one that one is fun uh we we kind of have the ability um and what we like about our size we have 13 taps um six staples uh five staples five staples um so we have a lot of room to play um, and I think that's been a lot of fun for me in particular, just because, like Sarah said, coming from the larger production facilities, having to make the same five to six beers every day, 
we can play around a lot and experiment with ingredients, find things that the neighborhood likes, what they don't, um, really listen to what our neighborhood wants. Wow, it's really great, man. Can you talk about naming your beers? Because I, I know you've got some fun names. Yeah, absolutely. We're kind of big movie, music buffs, podcasts, all of that. So other than Peace, Love, and Pale Ale, which is our uh, charity beer, we do everything based off of pop culture references. Um, so Atari's Lantern, our rice loggers uh, from a Wes Anderson movie, Isle of Dogs. Um, we it, it, it's a great way for us and our staff to connect with customers. They can take a look at the menu, um, kind of go over, challenge them on re- what references they can get, what references they can't. Um, yeah, that, that part we have a lot of fun and we're small enough and don't distribute outside of the state that um, we can kind of not have to worry about, you know, a big production company coming after <laughs> us for, <laughs> for having a name. Right. Yeah. I mean, TV, music, movies, whatever's popular, you know, at this point in time. We just did a movie from the menu. I don't know if you've seen that. Uh, it's kind of a chefy based movie. So we kind of put our brewer spin on it and had fun making the video and stuff for social media. So just kind of having fun with it. And what was that beer? Uh, that was a uh, Calling Dr. Sunshine, a hazy IPA. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's fun. We, that movie hasn't been out that long and we're able to turn beers out long enough that our beer names can stay relevant. We can kind of deal with what's in the news, what's popular right now when we do it. So. Right. Instead of a regular restroom sign on the wall, we have Forrest Gump pointing, you know, to where the restroom is. So, really leaning into the pop culture yeah, stuff. It's fun. Being fun, being silly, having fun. Anything Forrest Gump is a winner to me. Hey, I'm okay. Um, Fresh Hop Fest. I heard that you guys do. Tell us about a Fresh Hop Fest and also hops and the hop season here in Colorado because we're going to talk about ingredients because you also have a lot of great breweries and a lot of great ingredients. Yeah. Hops in Colorado specifically have kind of taken off in the last five or so years as far as hop farms. Uh, There was typically only one high wire hops and now Billy Goat is a big one in the Montrose area. Um, So fresh hop beers specifically and when we say fresh hop we mean they can only be brewed once a year typically around september uh, during hop harvest season and what they do is they cut down the binds with all the fresh hops pick them straight off the bind throw them in a cooler and we brew with them within ideally within 24 hours of them being picked just try to get the freshest hop humanly possible Um, so you really can only do that once a year during harvest season and they're incredibly sought after. Not oh, not everyone is able to do them. It's It takes a lot of strain on your equipment. Um, you have to have the equipment ready at the right time because there's only one time a year. And harvest always changes like anything. Um, it's never a set day every single year. It just depends on the seasonality of everything. Um, so we kind of wanted to rally around that idea um, and really, especially with some of us being new in the neighborhood at the time, as far as breweries go, um, we wanted an event that kind of brought all the breweries together, kind of show them that we're more collaborative than competitive. Uh, so that's kind of how we started it, is we had all the breweries bring their fresh hot beers to our parking lot uh, for the first year, uh, set up a small stage in the parking lot, and it was um, it was huge. We Luckily, the fire department didn't show up. But... Um, <laughs> Yeah, so we've kind of grown that. Careful what you wish for. No, I know. I probably shouldn't be saying that. (laughs) But now we shut down the street, uh, invite other local Denver breweries, try to keep it as local as we can, but expand it little by little. Um, And yeah, it's been it's been a lot of fun. Huge neighborhood hit. In terms of brewing, just walk us through at, at your production level. What are the challenges of using fresh hops and you know when you're using it what stage in the brew process yeah the main um challenge with fresh hops is their whole cone still so typically when nowadays systems are set up to use pelletized hops which break up really nicely in the boil the fermenter um and you can just dump them right down the drain not have to worry about anything getting clogged with whole cone it'll clog up the entire system because we're 
we've gotten so used to pelletized hops, systems aren't really made to handle whole cone. So you have to get really creative in that process just to make sure that you're not getting anything stuck in the heat exchanger, um, anything like that. The whole cone hops also coming straight from the farm haven't had a chance to go through that pelletizing process where they're heated up, ground up a little bit. So they do come with some uh, live bacteria, bugs, things like that, that you kind of have to use them hot side, uh, make sure they're getting hot enough to kill everything you don't want so you don't get an infection in your brewery too. Wow. Tell me that again. Tell me more. This is pretty fascinating. Yeah, yeah. So it is an incredibly fun process because we do get um, – the very large majority of our hops come from Hophead Farms in Michigan. Um, and when I say very large majority, it's like 99%. But they do, when they harvest every year, they will basically, they'll pick them that night, uh, load them into a bin for us, get them in the freezer until they can schedule a uh, flight southwest freight. Um, and basically, they'll load them southwest freight, and in the bottom of the freight, uh, airplane, they'll basically freeze. So when we get them, they're perfectly green, lush, they're, they're beautiful. Um, but we go out to the airport, we go out to DIA, pick them up, drive them to the brewery and brew them with them right that day. They're, they are fresh, 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 less than 24 hours, uh, picked. So it, it's been really fun. It's, it's a really long day. Um, you got to re rely on Southwest freight, which isn't always the easiest thing, you know, shipping problems, but, um, it's, it's worth it. It's worth it for us. And then, uh, w when do you drink the beers? Uh, how long after they're made? And then what, what, what's that first sip of beer like for you with the fresh hops? Yeah, sure. Um, it's, Typically for the fresh hop beer, uh, any of our ales, especially when we dry hop them or anywhere, three to four weeks. Um, so, yeah, three to four weeks, and you, you just you can't you you can't replicate that flavor any other way. You can use as many hops as you want, as many different kind of hops as you want. Uh, fresh hops just it hits different. Oh, believe me, I know. It's the kind of thing that, that I would seek out at Fresh Hop Fest, oh, yeah. definitely. Absolutely. Yeah, the neighborhood's really rallied around it. We have uh, breweries contacting us who want to be a part of it, so that's it's pretty cool. Yeah. I've got a lot more questions for you guys. We actually have some friends here from the Bolzol Festival, uh, a couple, a tequila maker and his, his importers and a, a mezcal importer. It's, it's a pretty special day in, in Denver, this, this great beer and event town. I'm going to give a big shout out to it to Denver, just how welcoming the, the community was. And we the food component of our event is pozole. And Denver gets pozole, right? Yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, you're not wrong about that. And on the East Coast, there's some great chefs making pozole, but, you know, in the public, you know, consciousness, it, it doesn't pop out. When you say pozole, a lot of people have to think about it out here in Denver. No doubt about it. Absolutely. It's so um, b before they come on, I, th I think we're going to take a break in a few minutes and, and they'll come on. I I'm, I'm going to ask you about a couple of the community aspects like the awesome mural. And what's your hashtag for that? Uh, portrait. So P-O-U-R, pouring a beer, portrait. So our mural uh, was created by Drew Button, which is an artist in Denver that Greg has worked at at previous breweries at Rockyard and Castle Rock that does did their label. And when we were opening the brewery, we knew we wanted a mural, but we didn't know a muralist and we knew Drew. So we asked him, Hey, would you want to make our mural? And he was like, I've never done one before. And we were like, well, we've never opened a brewery before. So <laughs> that's perfect. Uh, we showed him the space. We gave him free reign and he completed that amazing piece of work for us. He also did the Forrest Gump. I got a peace sign for us as well. Uh, super talented. He's probably done 15 to 20 other murals now around Denver and the state since then. Super sweet guy. Uh, kind of a nice thing. We still get people sometimes that'll be like, wow, when did you add that? I'm like, it's always been there. So sometimes people don't see it right away, which I don't know how you couldn't see it because it's huge. But it's a, it's a fun piece. You know, he wrote a whole description about what it means, but it's really just kind of doing whatever we want to do with our beer. And kind of breaking the mold and the, the lines behind it and and showcasing what we can do. Well, that's great. If you look at our, our show photos, the, there'll be um, the, the great mural as our backdrop. Anything else you guys want to say before we invite the other people in? No, no. Appreciate uh, appreciate it, man. We, um, 
yeah, we're, we're looking forward to the summer. We got first Friday season coming where we close down the lot, um, have a bunch of live music. Um, so if you're in the area, especially on first Fridays, we release a beer, a new beer every first Friday. Come check us out. Is that everywhere in Denver? Because we were at the Skylight venue in the Santa Fe Arts District. They also talked about First Friday. Santa Fe has a big one as well. It's typically a little neighborhood-based, just depending on where you are. Tennyson has a pretty established one. Santa Fe has a very established one. And you'll see them kind of in and out. It's, it's really great opportunities for people to just come out and see what all the small businesses on the street are all about. Yeah, it's an opportunity for us, too, to showcase a new artist. So... Our beer is our art, but First Friday art walks are where they originated. And so every month we bring in a new artist and they get to hang their their pieces on our wall and we sell them for them. Uh, we don't take a commission or anything on it. We just want to get their name out there and we sell a decent amount for people. So it's it's really cool. There's music, there's art, there's food, there's drinks. It's just a really fun kind of busy day. Wow. And Let's just give a shout out to talk about great women in beer who are behind it, behind the scenes. Emily Huto, great job, Radcraft Beer. Um, you want to give her a shout out, Sarah? Yes, I would love to give Emily Hutto a shout out. Uh, you've been so helpful for us, and I we love working with you. You're the best. All right, we're going to take a short break. We're back in a few minutes here on Beer Sessions Radio. We're out here in Denver, Colorado. All right. Coming this spring, we're working on something big for opening soon. Opening a restaurant can sometimes take months or even years. So I have this one consulting client that's been three months away from opening for the past year. And I had a calendar reminder show up today, and the reminder was that our goal was to open tomorrow. But this spring, you'll be able to hear it in just a few hours. On March 30th, he had passed away, and then on March 31st, he had come back to life. And then on April 2nd, he had passed away again. And I was like, okay. My regards to the family, I don't even know how to receive this information. So tune in as we follow one of Brooklyn's best and brightest young chefs and restaurateurs on their journey from start to open doors. Alex, you need to put more money in. We're out. We can't pay anybody. He is the worst. Oh my <laughs> God, that guy. It's the build. Subscribe to Opening Soon from Heritage Radio Network, wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Cheese State University. Cheese State University was created for dedicated cheese professionals seeking to deepen their knowledge, sharpen their skills, and build connections. It feels like a gift to be able to give this gift to people because I know that from my own experiences, I know how valuable, consolidated, incredible training resources are. They offer an in-depth education on all things cheese, as well as an active network for peer support and career development. You can pop over to the Quad, which is our social networking and engagement app. Um, and so that's a really fun and dynamic aspect of Cheese State University. Cheese State's three-part course is designed for seasoned pros and entry-level mongers alike and covers all the skills one needs to perform on the cheese counter. The structure of Cheese State University is all based on the Cheese State University Field Guide. Um, and that is a three-volume resource. It's all digital online. At the end of the course, students will be ready to ace the field guide assessment and earn their Cheese State Scholar Certificate. Another resource is a video series where we tackle sort of like these thornier questions that you can get on the cheese counter, like what is rennet and like why is this cheese so expensive and can pregnant people even eat cheese? At Cheese State, you're among experts, you're among scholars, you're among cheese lovers, and most importantly, you are a monger. Join them in the Ivy League of Cheese Education at CheeseStateUniversity.com. Hey, hey, welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on Heritage Radio Network. This is part two of our Denver episode. We're at the Emporium Brewery in the uh, Berkeley area of Denver. And I just was talking with Sarah and Greg Fetzer. Say hi, guys. Hey. Hello. So um, we, we, were here, we are here for the Bozole Mezcal Pozzoli Festival. So some of the Mezcal and Tequila folks came by as well. And it's such a pleasure to, to be with them. And uh, we're going to introduce them. But first, we're going to ask them what they're drinking. So everyone say their name, where you're from, and what beer you're drinking. And the, the taproom guy is going to give you the, the right name of the beer. So let's go with Eduardo. 
Hey, hello. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, uh, my name is Eduardo. I am a partner of Oaxaca Mezcal. I'm very happy to be in the Bozole again and in this fantastic city. What a show. It was fantastic. And always my beer of choice is uh, IPA. This time it's a hazy IPA, East Coast style. I don't get the name, but it's fantastic. It's called uh, Calling Dr. Sunshine. And that's the one we were talking about, right, Greg? Yep, exactly. The menu reference. All right. And now, Mike. How are you guys? Um, my name is Mike Moreno. I have a couple different businesses, actually. So I own Moreno's Liquors and Osito's Tap in Chicago. But I am here uh, specifically to work with my good friends from Amate Tenya with my business, uh, MM Imports. And yeah, I am currently drinking a lovely blonde coffee um, uh, ale, right? Yeah. So it's a nitro coffee blonde called Conditions of My Parole. And that's another cool name. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Pussifer reference. So if you're familiar with Tool, Perfect Circle, Pussifer, same lead singer. Yeah, I'm not, but it's okay. <laughs> and now our, our, our friend from the tequila place himself. Yeah, thank you for inviting us. Uh, my name is Alberto. I'm the tequila producer of Amatitena Tequila. And yes, uh, thank you for the event. It's amazing. It was amazing, the Polo Sole. And now I'm drinking uh, Double Oak. Uh, porter style? Yeah, oh. so it's a, a rye barrel-aged yeah. Baltic porter. Yeah. All time I prefer this stuff. I love this. <laughs> it's great. It's fun to drink beer with my, with my mezcal and tequila friends. And Roman. I am Roman. Uh, I'm the importer of Amatitania tequila. I'm here today drinking uh, Blackberry Smoke. It's a nice, fruity, you know, beer for the morning time. Well, I guess my morning, because we were at the fantastic Bowl of Zole show last night, yeah. hanging out at the after parties as well. So, you know, late night, late morning, you know, that kind of day today. <laughs> tell you, we, we were welcomed in, in Denver, and, um, you know, there's such a great community here. Thanks, Greg and Sarah, for, for hosting us at Emporium, a really great beer bar and brewery. Um, so, Bowl of Zole, I, I want to talk to you guys about what you guys do, because, you know, you're going to be, all of you are going to be at a couple different events with us. Uh, we're in Denver, you're going to be in Boston, two weeks, you're going to be in, in New York City. Um, we're going to start with Eduardo, because last time I saw him, I said, Eduardo, in the world of Bozoli, you are one of the originals, because you were there at the first the first one, so I've kind of bonded with you. It's like, you know, I was born out of the womb into Mezcal and Tequila, and I saw Eduardo. Yeah, well, uh, you know, uh, Pozole certainly is one of uh, more Mexican soups than you can find in uh, a lot of places, more in the United States. Um, it's certainly uh, incredible to see how much all these restaurants that you invite to your shows get creativity. Cheers. I get a creativity and, and you know, I get, I get Pozoles that I never have in my life in Mexico. And oh my God, I really like those. But with this creativity, they add seafood. They add uh, so much ingredients. Yesterday, it was a neighbor of guy to mix Chinese food with the pozole. It was incredible, the sparkling flavors, really nice. Or, uh, or our friends of La Diabla, they just bring the pozole to another level. You know, this is incredible when a big chef is able to make a fantastic pozole. And also you can add a little bit of a great tequila, like a, my, my brother here is doing, or a great mezcal. Man, you are going certainly in the perfect pairing. So I know I not only one of the originals, but I will be certainly one that I will never leave you guys. I will be always there for sure. Great, that's a great intro. Oaxaca spelled W-A-H-A-K-A. Mezcal, Eduardo. Um, and the, the pozole he had was uh, from Hop Alley, which does do like a Chinese Yunnan flavors. And Mike, you, I, I, the reason I wanted you guys here is because you're a good talker and you're into sales. But, um, you know, why Mezcal, why tequila? And um, tell us what you do because, you know, you're in Colorado. Yeah. Uh, why Mezcal and why tequila? That's an excellent question. First of all, there is nothing as complex or as unique as Mezcal and tequila. I mean, when you're talking about the processes, talk about and think about terroir. Now you're thinking about wine. You know, a lot of people, when they think about spirits, they don't assume terroir because most of them are just utilizing, you know, whatever um, 
corn they might get from their local distributors, so on and so forth. But what we're doing here is a passion project. And that's why I love sitting here with Eduardo, a good friend of mine, and we're with Alberto, who's, you know, they're both doing really unique things in various different regions of Mexico. But they have fantastic products because they're controlling everything all the way from the agaves down to the distillation process. The slow cooking process that we're doing is going to change the flavor profiles. The wild fermentation, that's really unique. You know, so we're, for me, um, tequila and mezcal is, is, is truly a passion of mine. It's things that I love. Um, now to go into kind of what I do and or we're taking a quick photo. <laughs> so what I do and, and you know, and, and why I'm here, um, obviously, you know, I've, I've had a liquor store in, in Chicago for years, 46 years uh, in, in May this year. We're very excited about the, our anniversary. Um, I opened up a speakeasy, but something that I really had wanted to work on and, and um, focused heavily in, within the last couple of years and have had actually since 2015 started as, as a marketing firm. But then I was like, you know what, there's so much more I could offer and there's so much more we could do with this is I started working on bringing unique products into the markets. So I started in Illinois. We just expanded into Colorado, um, got connected with, you know, with now I'd consider a good friend, Roman, who was able to, to um, help me get some amazing products. And Amate Tenya was just such a wonderful tequila. And, you know, it's, it's fun to kind of see how we're able to connect with people, I was down in Mexico last year. I met Roman's wonderful father over at Old Town Tequila. And then Alberto, and he, I felt like Alberto was actually more excited to see me than I was to go down there. He was like, oh, you got to see this. He was taking all these photos. He showed me a mateteña. And I said, this is such a good tequila. And that is when I was like, I need to get involved. And what was a favorite chef's pozole you had last night at Bolazola? Oh, man. There was a pozole I had outside in the corner. I wish I remember the name. Chef Oscar Padilla. He's, he's known as Gaucho. He's opening a new place. He worked at, at uh, one of the other restaurants before. Yes, that pozole was absolutely killer. I loved how he, the flavor profiles, the little bit of like smokiness and texture that he did with the meat. That was really good. It was so wild riding to Denver for the first time and, and doing the festival. And you guys who have been with us in other cities and, uh, you know, we're meeting the Denver breweries and, and chefs and it's just a great experience. Roman, we're going to end up with Alberto because uh, his, his product is so special. But intro to you, because, again, you're, you're someone that grew up in the industry. Tell us about Roman, who you are and, you know, why you're here with me. Oh, man. I don't even know where to begin with myself, I guess. Um you know, I've always loved agave products and, you know, uh, uh, doing fun, different things. And it's kind of like, you know, basically you can, I can kind of like book in what Mike was saying, the same exact things about why agave is special. I got into importing a couple of years ago. Um, Amatitania was my very first project and kind of like talking to Alberto about it was why I did get into importing. It was... You know, I still remember when he sent me up these little samples. I still have one of the bottles left, you know, and, you know, what thing we want and what we like and all that good stuff. Well, go back with you. So you grew up in the industry. So tell us, you have a, there's a family business. Tell us about that because I've, I've never been there in San Diego. <laughs> well, you need to visit Old Town Tequila in San Diego. So that's my dad's store. It's a really famous agave spirit store. He was one of, you know, the early pioneers of adopting agave spirit products. And what I mean by agave spirits is tequila, mezcal, bacanora, ricea. You can book in Sotol onto that too, even though I know technically Sotol is not an agave. But, you know, in the general sense of things, for Americans, it's an agave spirit. <clears throat> but so, yeah, so it's kind of, it, I, I was one of those people who's lucky enough to always have access to these things and be able to build up a palette to recognize like good products and like what makes a quality mezcal, like Oaxaca, you know, same thing too with what Alberto's family's always done with their tequila products. And it's just kind of one of those things that it's, it's, it's hard not to love the culture of Mexico because it is so unique and they have such fantastic, especially like in the food and spirits world. Like, I mean, your, your bowl of Zole show, like, in all honesty, it's like, I didn't have a bad pozole 
or or agave spirit last night when I went around myself and tried anything. I mean, I could pick out like favorites probably, but really like I'm just like, you know, what's that term? Splitting hairs at this point by picking out like what pozole was my favorite. And, and to speak to that like incredible diversity of culture of Mexico, it's like there was every single pozole I tried at the show is different. And I've done your shows now in Brooklyn and Boston and it's the same thing with those shows. They're all so different. You know, but what I love about your Bolazole shows is you get that real sense of community that is also a big part of Mexican culture where it's like you get that family, you know, like everyone's your friend. And so that's kind of what I think makes the Bolazole shows fun and unique. Why, you know, I'm from San Diego. It's not easy for me to get to Boston and Brooklyn and Denver. You know, it's, uh, you know, I'm in the corner of the country, you know. So it's uh, it's always one of those things that it's just... Uh, magical experience doing these shows. And I love also, too, you know, the hearing how much people love a Montetania and, you know, the tequila, you know, it's who doesn't like to hear, you know, positive things about what you're doing. Wow, Roman, you're great. And we're gonna, I'm going to ask you more questions because um, you are an important, important guy in our, in our little club. And now, uh, Alberto, tell us about your, your family's business. You said it was six generations. Yeah, uh, I come from the five to six generation of agape growers. And in the business of tequila, I'm the third generation of master distiller. And yes, it's, it's very fun when we share with all customers, all people, our, our pleasure of make tequila, share our tradition, the traditional methods like use tajona, use wild fermentation. Everything is, is fun. I really like that you are making. Thank you. Well, um, I'm going to have Roman and Mike are going to ask you questions because... Um, they know you well. So, Roman, let's talk about w w when you first met Alberto and his family and some of the, s the steps and ways you had to work together to, to bring his tequila to the state. I mean, when I first, first met Alberto, I wasn't even involved in the industry. You know, I was living in New York. You know, I used to be a social worker. I, you know, one of my, um, you know, like actually one of my... Uh, uh, I guess you could call it a territory. We used like different lingo in the, in the social working world was actually the union beer distributors in uh, Brooklyn. And so, um, but when I would go back home and visit, my dad would always talk about, you know, the partidas and I would meet Alberto and stuff like occasionally at events and I would drink his te famous tequila cava de oro and a lot of the other products they make. Because even though Alberto um, and his family primarily, they put their name on products like Cava de Oro and Amatitania. They actually make, he makes a lot of brands. He makes probably about what, like 23, 25 brands? I think around 20 to 23, yeah, yeah. around. And I mean, some of these brands too that even they might not make anymore are some very famous brands that they were the original distillers of. Um, and also to his family's like credited with being the inventors of the modern style tequilas, which are the ones with a, a those more like rich caramel and chocolatey flavor notes in tequila. So when I moved back to San Diego after, you know, I love New York, but you know, after a while, over, over 10 years, you could only take so much uh, <laughs> New York City in the subway. But so after I moved back in, I started really working for my dad, like helping him with his website, oldtowntequila.com. That's when I really got to start knowing Alberto, like by, by traveling a lot down to Mexico. And I'm lucky because out of San Diego, you can just drive 30 minutes to Tijuana, hop on a quick Valaris flight, and you're in Guadalajara. You know, so it's, that's when I really got to know Alberto and I really respected Alberto's worth ethic and that he's really one of those people who he wants to make good tequila. You know, that is what he wants to do. He's not one of those ones who's making a brand to just have a brand of tequila because it will make money. Like, no, he's doing it out of the passion. And that's something that I like always. It's one of those things I like working with people who care about what they're doing versus like, I'm just doing this for the money. I mean, there's plenty of things. If you just want to do something for the money, I mean, might as well just go, go work in finance, you know, work 60 hours a week, plug in business stuff into a computer. So, you know what I mean? It's, oh, that's a great answer. And now Eduardo, you know, like, again, you're one of my original Bozole guys. What's the difference between Mezcal and tequila for our listeners? Oh, okay. It's, um, it's, it's, this is the question of always, and I, I, I think the answer is very easy. 
Um, both are fantastic uh, products to come out from the agave, right? Just tequila pick or choose to work with only one agave, that is a blue agave, that is a fantastic agave, so noble, so resilient. But in, in mezcal, we have the right to work with any agave that we can find sugar in. Actually, in Mexico, we know more than 40 different kinds of agave that we can get sugar out and we can prepare a use. So when you compare mezcal, you shouldn't compare with tequila. You have to compare with wine. So as uh, each wine, each grape gives you a different flavor in a wine, right? A Merlot is not the same than a Pinot Noir, etc. In mezcal, an espadín, a Madre Cuiche, a Tobalá, a Tepestate, a Javali, they will be give you each one a very different flavor. Also, mezcal is made with the tradition of the land that is made, and we have a lot of tradition of, of, of mezcal. hundred years ago, maybe less, tequila was called vino de mezcal, right? Because it's a mezcal made in this region of tequila. But right now we have a mezcal that is made in another places in Mexico, and they used to follow the traditions, a tradition to come that far away that maybe before the Spaniards, when we start working with the agave, because the agave was before the humans in our territory. So I think that is the big difference between tequila and mezcal is just the agaves and the way that we work on them. So the agaves, they're a plant indigenous to Mexico. They've been there forever. Yeah, they've been forever. Much, much long time before the humans, for sure. Now this is an awkward question, but I have to ask it because so many people ask about, you know, what's the right thing to do? I mean, you guys are... Mexican, Mexican-Americans, Mexican products, and you're, and you're coming to the States. Um, how important it is for you to represent your own brands? How important it is for you guys to, to be the identity and, and the leaders on, 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 on those sales to the U.S.? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, as agave, you know, has been booming over the last few years, I mean, let's think about tequila, first of all. It's growing 20% annually in the United States alone. And then you look at the massive amount of mezcals that are coming in. You know, back in the day, people looked at mezcal as like moonshine. They looked at it almost as like, oh, this is not tequila. It's not high quality. But now people are understanding and they're realizing the quality that's behind it. But everybody wants to get into tequila these days. You've got Kendall Jenner and all these other people that want their own tequilas. But what are they doing to actually pre preserve the tequilas? What are they actually doing to preserve the mezcals? You know, and we have to understand. You mean the traditions? Not just the tradition. I think also the preservation of the agaves overall. You know, there's so many people that are coming in and they're stripping the land and taking all these agaves at very young ages. Um, they're not uh, reforesting, making sure that, that these agaves are, are there for longevity. And at this point, I'm talking a lot about mezcal. You know, there's so many wild agaves out there. For example, like jabalí, which I absolutely love. But what are we doing to preserve that? And I think as Latinos, as Mexicans, we need to uh, remember where we came from and respect our products, respect our, our heritage, and respect the land to make sure that this is not a fad. This is something that could last for thousands of years that people can love and enjoy, but also preserve and persevere. Alberto, talk about your practices and traditions. Yeah, uh, same thing. I really respect all things about mezcal, uh, even other spirits from Mexico, like Sotol, Bacanora, and Raizella. Uh, the, the main thing is respect about the farmers, the agave. I mean, like, every town has his own agave. In Jalisco, we have blue agave all of them, but really, I, I really like the respective tradition and that. Yeah, so I mean, that that's the thing that like, I love to book it on what kind of everyone was saying. And it's it's one of the reasons why an earlier question to add on to about like why working with Alberto on a Montetania is, is it was kind of like he wanted to build this brand on preserving these traditions that are the old world styles, you know, like having everything be single field, you know, honoring the fact that tequila, like Eduardo was saying, is just 
another type of mezcal that uses blue rubber agave. So it's kind of like that thing, like it, it's honoring these old school practices of, you know, doing it responsibly, not making these big, massive batches that you can, you know, cook, crush, distill, ferment and bottle in 24 hours. And it, it really is one of those things like when you, you taste these certain products that like Amatitania, Fortaleza is another one, um, <clears throat> Don Fulano, like they all, uh, Oaxaca, you know, in mezcal world, they all are doing it responsibly, like in honoring how these things should be done. And you can taste the difference in where like the terroir matters and, and you can tell people are doing it responsibly, which I think is important for the longevity of the industry. And then what, what was your favorite pozole last night at Bolozole? Oh man. You know, don't forget, I'm an importer, so there's lots of restaurants, and we want a Montatania to sell around here, so I like them all. <laughs> You're just too good. I actually prefer this pozole from Palenque. Palenque. Was it the cold one? Palenque? Palenque restaurant? Yeah, the cold one. There was the, yeah. the Frio one, yeah. Oh, that was a good one, too. I mean, they were all good. I mean, it's, um, I mean, my shoe really liked one of them the best last night. You know, when I got home, I saw, like, my boots were covered in pozole, so. <laughs> but I really like the ones from Toro, Palenque, Hop Sally, El Chingon. Um, I forget the guy, like, next to us, Fork, Fork and Spoon? Yes, and uh, one was Los Chingones and the other was El Chingon. It's really good. Yeah. 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 I would love to add uh, my five cents about your question that uh, you asked, because I think it's very, very important what you said. We as a Mexicans, American Mexicans, so people that really uh, appreciate the tradition of, uh, of our uh, spirit. Uh, we, I, I've been in a world where uh, the Americans impose their own rules and their own view of our culture. So when the Green Bottle come in the United States, they come in with their own speech about what is mezcal. They say they have to be 45 ABV, they have to be no barrel, don't wait, no way that you can put a, a worm in the bottle. And they was like a, the Bible of the mezcal, what American people say is mezcal, you know? And they don't have idea about really what is mezcal, but they impose their point of view. So I feel in a little bit like the responsibility as a Mexican, who carry a brand full of Mexicans when the money of my brand come back to Mexico, don't go to France or go to other uh, big distribution, right? They are seat in the United States or whatever else in the world. Uh, I feel this responsibility to teach, to tell the truth about our mezcal, right? Our mezcal is, was being borrowed since day one. Uh, they have worms since day one because they, the people need have the need to distinguish one mezcal to the other to make a little more classy or nice a, a mezcal than you will serve to your family when they come in your house to visit, right? And so if somebody else put a, a, a warming about mezcal, it's not my fault. It's not the fault of, of the tradition, right? And also 45 ABV is not true. That is just a, the 45 ABV is something they impose in 19... 90, you know, it's not something that happened in the 19th century, 20th century, 18th century, where the mezcal was between 20 ABB and 40 ABB, right? So, yes, as a Mexican, I think me and all my uh, nationals, we have the uh, chief to teach the truth of our traditions and tell the people that it's not only a business. It's a tradition. I have to be respected as it is. So t tell us also where, where your, you know, your, your, most of your either farms or production are located. And then also a little more about these traditions, like how long does it take from the time you harvest the agave until it comes in bottles? Of course. Well, uh, Oaxaca Mezcal um, is a, a company that uh, is based uh, in San Dionisio, Cotepec, Oaxaca, that is one hour and a half of south of the Oaxaca City. 50 minutes in, in front of Matatlan, that is the world capital of the mezcal, just for the quantity of they made. Um, we are only single village and so single master distiller. The master distiller is not an employee of the brand. He's partner of the brand. So we went one of the first, if not the first, brands of incorporate as the maker, 
as a partner of the of the brand and not only an employee. Um, so we are single single uh, village, single master distiller. We only work with the agaves they grown around us, so we don't bring agaves from far away. We try to be very sustainable. Uh, an example of our sustainability is we have an event uh, each year around Air Day where we bring volunteers of all around the world and we plant wild agaves. This year I have more than 50 volunteers. They pay their airfares, their uh, housing, and they give me one day of their vacation. So they stayed in Oaxaca to participate in this really nice uh, and green initiative to reforest. So how can people get involved in that? How can people get involved in Oh, just to send me a DM uh, in one of my social media, Oaxaca Mezcal, and uh, Instagram, Facebook, and I would love to, to find a place for them. Uh, if I have a space, but I think I, I can have a space for any one of your listeners, for sure. So you, you ask me how long they will take to make Mezcal and how much. It's very interesting. Mezcal take around between 10 and 14 kilos to make one liter of Mezcal depend of how efficient you are, okay? And they take around three weeks to finish one batch to the plant, to the bottle. That is another, another big point. So when you do the things manually, you've lost a lot of juice. Uh, some brands of tequila, they're using diffusers or uh, autoclaves, they can get much more efficient. They can go for maybe four or five kilos for one liter, so uh, that is, that is a one of, of recipe of success economically, right? But it's not the way that we do mezcal, we do it by hand, so we lost a lot of juice for sure. Um, between what happening with the wild agaves, etc. yes, we work with wild agaves. We have five agaves that we work with, Madre Cuiche, uh, Tobala, uh, Espadín. <laughs> <laughs> and um, we have a Juan Jabalí, uh, so and the um, uh, and So we we have these five agaves, and in these five agaves is everything that we do. We play a lot with the spadin because spadin is the king. You know, spadin is what they rule United States. Is what we export more. Is what we use it for cocktails. And uh, with these spadins, I do vegan pechugas. I have three vegan pechugas. Uh, I know when you see vegan and pechuga, you say, "Wow, what's happened?" It's because pechuga is related to the name of party not to the name of uh, chicken breast. So when long time ago we have celebration, they serve turkey breast and the people hear pechuga and they didn't relate it with the plate they have in front, but they related about a special celebration. So they start making a special mezcal they call pechugas. So sometimes you have meat and money for putting meat, but sometimes you only have the, the uh, botanicals in your house or using botanicals or you have a beautiful fruit Three in your in your backyard, so you're using those. So this is where they come the, these vegan pechugas. I, I, I actually have a question about that. <clears throat> sure. Is one time I was told, and while I was in Michoacan, um, that pechugas like is is this like I want like is the truth of this? Pechugas were originally created by women for women because they were a softer version of mezcal. Like once you had the fruits and meat and all that stuff, that's kind of what I was told one time in Pátzcuaro at this like tiny little cantina. Well, um, I know the pechugas was created for celebration. And uh, now if it was created for a woman, I will not doubt about it because always the girls are in the kitchen. The women are, they, they bring the food or the fruit at the table. So I know doubt about it. There was maybe a woman behind that. But what I know is a pechuga is a celebration uh, mezcal. And I, we need to trade it really nice. But we, we can drink a lot of that because it's coming from Espadín. So that is good. We need to, to ask the people to drink a lot of Espadín and just to get the wild agaves for a very, very special occasion, very rarely, because we don't want to finish with these wild, with, with these wild agaves. It's, there are problems of sting. They can be extinguished if we keep getting it young because the people are, are, are greedy. They want money, so they kill the agaves young so they don't allow them to reproduce. They don't get a lot of juice, so they need a lot of those. And after they mix it with uh, espadine, and they sell it for $70 a liter, so a bottle. So when you see a cheap mezcal, please don't buy it. 
more if it's a, uh, they, they say that it's wild agave because certainly it's mixed with, with espadine and certainly they kill a young agaves. Uh, so this is no good. Cheap mezcal is cheap mezcal. Actually, Alberto, if it's okay with you, can I give everybody who's listening in uh, a little taste of what's going to be coming with the Matetena this uh, by the end of this year? So, <laughs> well, <laughs> obviously there's still things that we need to work out, but um, speaking about pechugas, we will have our own vegan pechuga that will be coming out um, near the end of this year uh, from Amatetenia. And Alberto, if you'd like to kind of just give people a little bit of insight of, of the fun stuff that we're going to be doing, I think uh, it'd be better to come from you than from me. Yeah, thank you. Yes, uh, in Amatitan, the place where i born in Zona Valles, you know, we have a specific microclimate, like a semi ravine. Ravine, yeah, semi tropical. Uh, we have mango. We have tamarindo, and we have plums. And mamay. Mamay, yeah. So we are planning to make a special batch of distillation with uh, fruits, and we'll be called barrancas, because if you visit Amatitan, it's very popular to visit the barrancas right there. It's the ravine, and it's the volcano tequila just in front, and the... Barrancas is, is just loosely translated to a ravine. So what Alberto is essentially trying to describe is there's these really deep, you know, essentially canyons, you know, right outside the, the town of Amatitan. Actually, it's really more of halfway between Amatitan and Tequila Town. So it's like the slopes of the volcano come down onto the plateau of the Tequila Valley, then it dips down there. And essentially this creates a semi-tropical... Um, microclimate, because I know you might be thinking like Mexico, Guadalajara, it's so far south. But don't forget, these are really high up in elevation areas. So um, they're actually not that tropical when you go down there. So because of that, these wild fruits grow. So what, what Alberto is going to be doing is creating essentially a tequila that's distilled like how Eduardo is doing a vegan pechuga. Um, it can't be called a pechuga because it's a tequila. But so that's why it's going to be a Matatania Barrancas uh -huh. edition. Yeah. And it's, it's going to be rested in everything in Mahonas, you know. Uh, yeah, we're trying to rest it minimum four months or six months. Maybe. And I mean, Oaxacas are, are really good. Bescal does some really good, yeah, like vegan pachugas. Another one yesterday at Bowl of Zole was Danny's Peloton one. That one was really good. That one tasted to me like a, a holiday ponche. Um, but yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Like, and it's, it's like, we've all been saying all along, like the amount of fun, different things you can do with agave spirits is always kind of like wild. Like, and, and it's fun. I, I can't even taste everything at that event, but even when I just have Danny, so his, his Leanda de Mezcal, it's like three or four different regions or types of, of, um, agaves. And I don't know who knows his stuff really well, but I have the Tobale. Is that, is that, to, to, last night and um i didn't even know what it was but i loved it does anyone want to tell me about just this and that that brand he has it's four or five different bottles and whether they're they're no from a leyenda de mezcal you want to tell me about it rome just a quick snapshot yeah quick snapshot like he uses different regions like guerrero durango um you know and it's kind of like eduardo was saying earlier like Agave is similar to wine. Terrar matters, and it really changes like the profile of the spirit where it's grown. And I mean, something that I've found interesting that I've learned over the years is there's even different types of like names for like the same agaves, and it's kind of like who's right. I mean, for 600 years in Oaxaca, they might have been calling it this, but in Durango, they called it that. So yeah, it's just, it's just that's what's really cool about Danny's Grand Landa line is it's highlighting the different regions and the flavor points that can come from those regions. Okay, last we're going to talk about Amatitania. Amatitania. So, Alberto, last night I, I got to taste what, what also is great about the event. I got to sit and taste with the maker himself. Uh, we tried the silver and, and, uh, and also something with some age. Tell me about what you tasted me, okay? Yes, we have uh, four products. It's the regular silver. It's 42% alcohol. 
and we have other silver is still strange. It's Fortnite. That's amazing. The flavor of, of agave and rustic flavor, earth, minerality. This is really good. And we have Reposado. It's only two months in ex bourbon barrels. And we have Añejo. Only rested one, one year in red wine barrels cask. Yeah, so so all those things, like Amatitania, like I was saying earlier, it's honoring the old school production methods. It's named after the town of Amatitan, which is the first recorded history of vino de mezcal production, which is tequila. Um, it's UNESCO certified in everything. So it's, you know, instead of, it's, it's the agave is cooked in a brick oven, heated by, I'm sorry, a stone oven, heated by wood fire, Tahona crushed, wild fermentation with open, open wooden tanks, Copper pot distilled Alambic style. And currently, Alberto is the only distiller using all those methods in one brand. You know, so the other brands do use these methods, but not all in conjunction with each other. So it's a really special product, and I hope um, you guys can all try it soon. It's available in New York, uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, the Northeast in general, Massachusetts, Illinois, Colorado, Texas, California, very soon to be Missouri and Kansas, and Alaska which I'm excited about. So it's, it's, we're expanding and it's, it's fun seeing everybody kind of get excited when they're trying, you know, what a really old school tequila tastes like. And then Mike, just tell us about what your role is with this brand in Colorado and maybe mention the a distributor that you're working with. Give us a little local flavor. Sure. You got it. So, um, you know, I had, I had already had some connections out here in Colorado and um, when I was talking with Roman and, you know, wanted to, to discuss future uh, prospects, Colorado was the perfect location for that. Um, I was telling them for a while that while the majority of the country is growing at, at this point, about 20%, um, Colorado is growing 25%. That's a 5% increase from the rest of the, the, the national market right now for agave spirits, predominantly tequila. Um, so I was like, we need to make sure that we get into Colorado. It's a very, very good market. The people here love and breathe tequila, literally. I know that it's a wine country, but or not necessarily wine country, but people love wine here. But again, very similar to wine. You're going into terroir. We've got the fermentation processes. And this is the perfect product for people that are really into tequilas. So when I was you know, bring this stuff in. I decided, you know what, let's, let's talk to momentum. And, uh, we started distributing it over here in, in, um, Colorado. So I've been working very heavily on, on trying to make sure that Amate Tenya grows to the entire Colorado market and reaches as many accounts as possible. Wow. Well, we're actually in, thank you to, uh, Sarah and Greg. We're in the brew room of Emporium Brewery in, uh, Berkeley region of, of Denver. And they're starting up some systems. I don't know if it's they're cooking something or they're cleaning, but it, we're going to make a make an exit soon. And and one more time, that was Mike Montero, uh, the 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 broker and and <laughs> Mike Moreno. Sounds like a movie star. <laughs> you could you could find us at uh, Moreno's Liquors. <laughs> Thank you. And we'll go around the room. Everyone else will just say again their name and their and their business, and we'll get out of here. Um, Thank you again, man. Really nice to 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 be in your program. Very proud. Um, very happy. Eduardo Belanzaran. I know I have a very difficult name. Mezcaleando on uh, Instagram, uh, Oaxaca Mezcal also. Thank you. Thank you again. Uh, I'm Alberto Partida, Master Distiller of Amateña Tequila. Thank you very much. And Roman Romaya, the importer of Amateña Tequila. And just really quickly to add on, because um, I know we're in Momentum, Colorado, also Illinois, Maverick, Texas, Skernick, the Northeast, and Berkshire Brewing, Massachusetts, and Integrity in Missouri, Kansas, in California, Skernick. And we're going to see you all. And it, it, hopefully the show's up by then, but if not, you in Boston, April 12th, 12th and in back in Brooklyn in uh, October 19th. So thank you guys so much. Thanks to our engineer, Armin Spengen, who's going to clean this up. I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here on Beer Sessions Radio. We'll catch you next time on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks so much, guys. Woo! All right. Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.